I'm Mark Hennick. This is So-Called Normal. We go hard. Generally speaking, most of us in 2020 work hard. These last several months, the added pressures and uncertainty of living through a global pandemic has introduced unknowns, new protocols, and created a world none of us saw coming. Work-related pressures, when severe, can and do lead to mental illnesses that can stop a productive person in their tracks. That's what happened to Thomas. On the rise, working for a large corporation, in a pressure-packed industry, the hours mounted, the family time dwindled, and finally, the bubble burst. I think in a lot of ways I spent about 10 years before my severe illness getting myself ready to be severely ill. What, is, um, what does that mean? Well, you know, as a young as a young guy and as a, as a young kid, I was super active. Um, mm. I played baseball. I played, you know, I was a musician for most of my 20s. That's how I went to university and, and afforded school was playing gigs and teaching guitar and bass. So I was constantly doing things that were that were that were invigorating and energizing and and that made me feel good. And, you know, I went to university and and I, I studied English history and poli sci and uh And I studied it because, you know, history tells you about what happened in our world. Poli sci tells you why it happened. And English kind of shows you the results, Mm -hmm. you know, through the art, right, Mm -hmm. of of different generations. And so I just wanted to understand the world, really, in my 20s and 30s. And and then it came along. And, you know, despite doing pretty well in the music industry, I wanted I was with my high school sweetheart and I wanted to uh, I wanted to do the responsible thing and, and get a job. And uh, I had started working as a as a bartender on the side just to make money. And, and I hopped into it as a career. And mm. it started out, you know, it started out as me, a, a bar trainer and, and training bartenders for Cara International. And I loved that. And, and then one thing led to another and I kind of got sucked into management. And um, that wasn't you know, a goal I, of yours to move into management. No, you know, but at the time I loved, I loved the fat, fast pace. Um, I loved the social aspect of it because, mm-hmm. you know, you really in the restaurant industry, that's, you know, you feel like all these guys are your buddies, right? And you're going to war together every day. And, and so, you know, psychologically stepping into sort of like a real workplace or as close to a real workplace as a musician can, um, <laughs> I, uh, it was, it was quite a natural fit at first, but, you know, working 50 hour weeks, when you're 27 and you know you've just finished school you don't have any any kids is mm-hmm. one thing um but what really happened over the 10 years that i was in in restaurants is you know 50 hours a week uh became 80 hours a week right you know, a lot a lot of people don't realize if they're not like on the ground level in in corporations like this you know when we jump up things like minimum wage it sounds wonderful um but what ends up happening is you know middle of the road people end up getting paid less and working more right. and uh and it really i mean that's pretty across the board with everybody i talk to right. in the industry so and ma- managing people too who i assume are you know pr- predominantly um minimum wage or slightly higher workers mm-hmm. uh and who are stressed as well who are, who are carrying a lot of that burden they're working harder everybody is right you know it's it, Though over the ten years that I was in the restaurants, yeah, it it really the the work and the expectations really ramped up, right? It's like how much how much blood can you get from a stone eventually, right? right. And um, and yeah, it, it really culminated, um, you know, in my in my first breakdown 
uh, which it's funny. I think I probably would have ended up working until I had a heart attack. Mm. Um, I was, I was working 60 to 80 hour weeks. I had, you know, after 10 years in the industry, I didn't play the guitar anymore. Um, I did not exercise at all anymore. I had nothing in my life. I, I worked and I took care of my kids. And, and do you think was that because you were um, busy and stressed or were those in retrospect early symptoms that things were starting to shut down for you? Well, it's a little bit of the chicken and the egg, I think. Hmm. Um, you know, I, uh, I think that had I not jumped in with both feet to my career and just said, you know what, I've got to support and provide for my family and this is what I'm going to do. Um, had, I, had I realized that it was important to do things like stay healthy mm-hmm. or, or, you know, keep something in my life that I love, be it music, be it be anything, right? It could be any sort of creative outlet, anything to, to get away and, and to relieve that stress. But I didn't have that. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I was the guy when I was working, um, you know, I got myself through to being a general manager in restaurants very, very quickly. Um, before I knew it, you know, less than five years after I started running restaurants, I was running the busiest restaurant in my company in, in, in uh, Mississauga. We were doing almost five million in sales a year. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it became it became a gradual sort of giving up of your freedoms, right? And you see right. less and less of your friends over the years. I, I think I probably learned much too late um, that a lot of people have coping skills that I never learned as a kid, <laughs> that that a lot of people just take it for granted that they're able to cope and, and release and let off stress and things like that. So I don't know, what was your experience? Did you not um, learn those coping mechanisms along the way um, or did they get forgotten I, at some point? I forgot them. I, I spent because, you know, when I when I first got sick, I, I tried picking up the guitar, for mm-hmm. example, and um, it was I, I described it at the time. It was like ash, like I could mm-hmm. play tunes that I know and and I could play them. And but it wasn't fun for me. You know, when I was when I was a teenager, I'd spend 10 hours a day playing the bass or playing the guitar mm-hmm. and I'd spend 10 minutes with it in my hand when I first got sick. And it just it felt awful. It felt like a chore. Right. Mm. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, like, because when I got sick, I had nothing in my life that I used to make myself feel better mm-hmm. except for sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I really, I spent that first year before I got connected to adequate help, just circling the drain and trying to cope with panic attacks that would start early in the morning after I woke up and would continue till about dinner every day. As the hours mounted at work, Thomas had health scares at home, first with his wife, then his father passed away. Two traumatic setbacks to go along with the stresses at work. Those who live with mental illness talk about triggers, events or an occurrence that can mean relapse. Thomas remembers one when a perfect day at the beach was spoiled. You know, in the month of August in 2016, I didn't have a day off. Uh, until August 27th, I remember. I, I took my kids up to Allenwood Beach, north of Wasega. It was just me and the boys. Nice sunny day. And uh, we got out of the car and my phone rang. And uh, two line cooks had called in sick. And uh, they needed me to come in and, and, and help them get through the dinner shift. So I had to look at my six and seven-year-old, or five and six-year-old at the time, kids. We just stepped onto the beach and say, sorry, guys, we got to go back. Mm. And so things were really spiraling at that point. Like I was drinking a lot, 
-hmm. at night when I got home, it was the only way I could get to sleep. I was sleeping almost nothing, four hours a night. Um, and on the 27th, I, I drove back and I, I went to work that night. And then it was that Sunday. That was a Thursday, I believe, the 27th that year. And then on the Sunday, um, after an 18-hour day dealing with, you know, really terrible, piddly, um, uh, inventory-related computer things on top of a crazy dinner rush that had kept me at the restaurant from 9 in the morning till 4 the following morning on the Monday. And uh, I went home, and uh, my wife had waited up for me which is very unusual. <laughs> and uh, and she, uh, she started asking me if I was okay and telling me that she was concerned. And I found, uh, bizarrely, I couldn't respond. Hmm. And I couldn't talk. And, uh, and I kept trying to. Um, and it was, a, it was a really bizarre situation. And I eventually, I, I kind of wandered down to the basement and, and she followed me and I, I laid down on the little bed that we have there. And, and I, I cried for hours, I think. And uh, eventually I fell asleep and I woke up the next morning and I was, I was driving Robin to work, uh, my wife, and she got me to agree to go to the doctor rather than to go into work. Mm. And, you know, I went to the doctor. Um, and will, willing, willingly, it sounds like. Yes, you went willingly at that point. Yeah. 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 Um, I went to the doctor. I had a blood pressure of like 180 over 120. Mm. Um, and so they sent me to the hospital. Sure. <laughs> and, uh, and then at the hospital... Uh, they did a bunch of tests and they were worried uh, cardiac was the main concern uh, because I had been uh, right through most of July and August I'd been having heart palpitations every day and um, then they did all the tests on my heart and found out everything was okay and that it was a psychological problem so they just they sent me on my way and sent me back to my family doctor to check in um, mm. and so that's really that was the acute phase of, of, of my illness right there in, in September mm. of 2016 and, and it really it started a path of you know three years worth of panic attacks that yeah. really didn't end um, in any significant way until about last year at this time Dr. Jennifer Swainson is a general adult psychiatrist and also teaches medical students and residents in psychiatry She's also an active researcher with a particular focus on treatment-resistant depression. She's recently authored and co-authored several publications on the topic. We discussed how our lives and our interactions impact our thoughts and ultimately how our brain functions. Dr. Swainson joins us from Edmonton, Alberta. The whole idea behind any kind of psychotherapy and why it's you know effective is you know, certainly there's the element of looking at someone's life and some practical problem solving with stressors that they may have, um, you know, coming to terms with different aspects of their life that may, uh, may be stressful or causing psychological distress. But the way you think about something actually changes the circuitry in your brain. Mm -hmm. So if you're used to always thinking very negatively, then those circuits in your brain are going to fire easily. If you start challenging your brain to look at things in a different way, challenge that negative thinking and focus more on some balanced um, thoughts that include some positive thoughts, you're going to be more able to do that and that's going to affect your mood. Yeah. Now, the, this might be a question better suited for a, a psychologist, but I'm interested in, in what your perspective is on dissociation. Um, what is psychiatry's perspective of uh, uh, dissociation is it a, a, a biological phenomena, or is it 
what you're talking about here, uh, uh, a response or an, a, an adaptation or alert? Is, is it a thinking process, I guess, or is it something happening in the brain when somebody can't be present in the moment for whatever reason, so their body does all kinds of things to take them out of that moment? That's a good question. And I, I suspect if you asked a handful of psychiatrists that question, you'd probably get some uh, variation in the answers. Mm-hmm. Um, my own thought is that it's both. Dissociation itself is uh, probably most common when there's been a history of trauma. Um, and we know that a traumatized brain reacts in a way to try, sort of try to protect itself. And dissociation happens often as a result. Um, and certainly it can be to varying degrees. You know, you can have somebody that sort of just briefly dissociates in and out of a conversation and, you know, sort of zones out, so to speak. And I think that happens to everyone from time to time, right? Um, but, you know, on, on a bigger level, you can have certainly have people that dissociate and sort of lose sort of gaps of time, so to speak. Um, so I, I, I think it's most often a trauma-related thing that has mm. roots in biology and psychological origins. How does a patient then uh, or a client... Um you know, you, you go to your doctor and you, or, or, or uh, you're brought to your doctor with what appear to be seizures or you're going to your doctor complaining about abdominal pain or whatever yeah. else it is, and they can't find any biological cause. I mean, patients seem to say over and over again that they feel they feel like they're crazy uh, because mm-hmm. they do ex- experience this. It, it's it's troubling for them. So h- mm-hmm. how do you help people uh, who are dealing with those kinds of things? Mm-hmm. You know, and... That does happen so often, you know, that there's people that experience these physical symptoms, um, you know, chronic pain is another one, um, that there may, no, there may be no sort of underlying clear condition, right, that we can treat. Um, and I think the important thing to recognize in those situations is that even though there's no specific cause that we can find, those symptoms are very real and the person is very much feeling them. And I think sometimes there's a, there's a thought that, oh, if we can't find a cause for it, they're, you know, it's all in their head, they're just making it up. And, and that's not right. They're not just making it up. Their experience is very real. But I think you know, the way I see that is what's happening there is the signals are getting mixed up. The brain, the brain is what perceives sensation, um, you know, what, what controls our motor activity. Um, and for whatever reason, it's, it's a brain disorder. The brain signals are getting mixed up and someone is perceiving pain in their abdomen when there is nothing there to cause pain. Or mm-hmm. someone is perceiving, um, you know, uh, uh, shooting pains in their arms and legs when there is uh, no other sort of underpinning to cause that. Mm. Fibromyalgia so, seems to be another one are, of those conditions. They are very difficult, challenging conditions to treat. Um, you know, we always look to see if there is any sort of underlying depression, anxiety, um, that is very common. It goes, that goes hand in hand with a lot of, um, uh, of these, what we call psychosomatic, um, physical symptoms. And so we look at treating those and, um, I think work on any kind of underlying psychological distressing issues. That's where mm-hmm. therapy and counseling can come in handy as well and be helpful. Treating those additional conditions can often increase the complications of finding an appropriate and effective balance in treatment approaches. As Thomas tells us, each option comes with a cost, physical or financial. 
after three years on you know my little medication roller coaster uh, i can definitely appreciate you know how i kind of view medication um it was the cast for my broken bone, mm. right? It was it was the it was what I needed to use so that I could keep myself safe and work on doing the actual healing. Right, right, right. right. Um, but it came at a cost. Yeah, every medication I've been on, and I and you know, I've been on a lot. I've been on antipsychotics. Yeah. I've been on almost you know every different type of antidepressant. Um, that, that's out there. <laughs> right. And did your workplace, um, did you have insurance through your workplace? Did it cover all of I these did. different treatments? Yeah. Yeah. No, I did. Um, I did, but you know, I, it, it, it covered nothing off the hop, um, other than what OHIP would cover. So mm-hmm. the insurance I had was income. Um, but like I, I didn't, after two years of being ill, my long-term disability started kicking in funds for actual private counseling. Okay. But I, I didn't have like, you know, one of the really good insurance plans. Right. So, uh, so well, I, was, well, what, are, what does that mean? It just in terms of what it covers, it didn't cover a lot or yeah. What? Yeah. Like my, my insurance plan didn't cover, uh, individual therapy. Um, it didn't cover anything, you know, like psychologists, for example, right? right. Psychotherapy, um, which, you know, I've come to really, you know, that's, it, it's all a framework, right? And, and we mm. need all of these tools, but you know, psychotherapy, I think should be our first line. Mm. And it's the mm. last thing that we tend to shell out for, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. What about, um, did you ever get to a point going through all these different medications where either you or your doctor felt like you'd tried everything? Like there were, there me. were no, there were no more medications left to try. Right. Oh yeah. Me. Uh, many, many times, many mm. times. Um, my doctor, um, Ian, Ian Daw, he's the, the head of Trillium and, um, you know, the, the care that he gave me, I can't, I, I run a walk every year to raise funds for Trillium because they saved my life twice. Wow. And, you know, a big part of that was, was, was Dr. Daw and, um, you know, his insistence, the, the two things that he gave me, um, you know, he gave me an attentiveness and, and a care and a compassion that, you know, I've spent years now around mental health and, and it's uncommon. Yeah. You know, if, if I was having a bad day, I'd, I'd send him an email and I'd hear from him and he'd help me. Yeah. Um, so that was really, you know, really, really key. But the biggest thing that he did for me was that, yeah, like about a year and a half in, two years in, you know, I'm looking at research saying that if you've had X amount of breakdowns and if you've been sick for X amount, I thought that I was living my life with it. Mm-hmm. And the, the most important thing I think that I got at a trillion at a Dr. Dog was that he never gave up. You know, when I told him, like, this is hopeless, he gave me that look, you know, that look that I, and I remember that look from restaurants, like when I was working at really good restaurants and someone would come in and be like, how is this? And you just look at him and go, yeah, it's fine. Don't worry. You're going to be okay. <laughs> and so I recognize that look, like I'm sitting here telling him my life is in shambles. I'm pathetic. Right. Uh, I'm never going to mess anything. And he just gave me this look like you're going to be fine. <laughs> yeah. I've often felt that um, people who have been through this kind of struggle and recovery uh, come out the other side better than and better prepared for future struggle than people who have never gone through this in the first place. You know, that's not to say I wish everybody should get depression and have a, a, you know, a breakdown and go into hospital and all that. But you do, personally speaking, learn a lot from it, I think. Yeah, but it's funny because people don't see if you've if you've gotten I've seen people get over cancer and Mm. and that's right. They're treated like they have this great new perspective on life. They've gone through this struggle. Um, And, you know, I was suicidal with mental illness. And what people don't realize is, you know, 
when I try and explain to people what suicidality is, it's it's a natural response to being in so much pain mm-hmm. that you can't bear it anymore. Mm-hmm. And especially when you're fighting a disease that makes you feel that it will never end and it will only get worse. So chemically, we know that it makes you feel that way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so when I got through my illness and, and I'm, I'm happy now and I'm, I'm calm and, you know, it's an, it's not all the time, you know, recovery isn't about my life being perfect. It's about sure. me being able to deal with it when it's not. Yeah. Um, it's not about me being happy all the time, but it's be about me being able to cope and put things in the proper perspective for me to be healthy going forward. Yeah. And, um, you know, I find people don't necessarily want to talk about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it, when you're coming from a mental health standpoint, like, you know, I, I notice it anyways. If, if I start talking about, you know, tools or things like that, people are going <laughs> to. It's kind of the complexity of it that we all seek a simple answer that wouldn't it be great if we can just go and, as they say, talk to your doctor, uh, get prescribed a particular medication and then hallelujah, you're all better. Uh, well, yeah. it turns out that I've met very few, if any, people uh, for whom that's been their recovery journey. Uh, they're usually much closer to yours and mine in terms of complexity and trying many, many different different options and routes and maybe maybe for some people eventually you find the key that unlocks the problem that that had always been there but i think mm-hmm. it's much more that you learn and change along the way that what you need changes along the way and recovery is very much a, a figuring it out process it, is, it seems yeah i always called it um when i was sick i called i called my mental illness the result of trying to stick a round peg into a square hole Dr. Christina Iglesia is a licensed clinical psychologist based out of the San Francisco Bay Area. In her private practice, she works with adolescents, young adults, and families. We asked Dr. Iglesia to discuss recovery. In her view, what does recovery look like? Recovery is whatever it means to you. Recovery is an ability to live your life authentically and involved with whether that's without a struggle or without a substance or managing it, I truly believe recovery is an opportunity for you to live your life fully without the detrimental or negatively impacted parts that potentially once existed. What about self-help strategies? What are some self-help strategies and do they work? Are they useful? Absolutely. I think the idea of self-help gets a bad name, but that doesn't mean that helping ourselves, which is the term, is a negative thing. I think we all have to help ourselves. I think that there's people in our lives that are there to help us. But at the end of the day, we have to be willing to show up to do the work to help ourselves get better. So, you know, these, you know, books or um, webinars or, you know, programs that people enter, I don't necessarily dismiss because it can give you tools and techniques where you can start to advocate for yourself and feel empowered by the decisions that you are going to make for your mental health. What about the role of parents, spouses, family? What role does family have to play in treatment and recovery? They have to be on board. If anybody is in treatment and or recovery, they will eventually go back into the real world where the real people will be there. And if they don't have that support at hand, 
then it is a disservice to their sobriety, their recovery, their relapse prevention. We have to be willing to do our own work as loved ones to support people in their healing journey. The moment that we choose not to, we are potentially, you know, causing a issue down the line that could be harmful to that person. For example, if your sister is recovering from substance use, you can't be using substances around them. If you choose not to support them in that, then that can be a barrier to their recovery. We have to be on board with the people that we love getting better, and we have to be mindful of our own behaviors, thoughts, and feelings so that we can be of support. It's great advice for all of us. Be mindful of our own behaviors, thoughts, and feelings so we can support our loved ones who are struggling with recovery. But what would Thomas say to you when your latest treatment isn't working, when you are in a state of hopelessness? What I tell them first and foremost is not to underestimate the the, the battle that they've got ahead of them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for the vast majority of people that get depression or they get anxiety, um, you know, it's it's not a good thing in their life and it can be really hard to overcome. But if we don't deal with it properly, you can get to the point of severe and severe mental illness, I find, is, you know, a much more dangerous road you know it's like you get the flu actually perfectly topical given you get the flu you know most people get the flu they're they're in bed for a few days and they're okay but you know people die from the flu every year mm-hmm. and you know four thousand people die in canada from the flu every year well four thousand people kill themselves every year and most of those people kill themselves because they succumb to a mental illness mm-hmm. so the first thing i do when I talk to people that are telling me that they're struggling is I, I tell them to really be kind to themselves, um, to listen to what they're being told by their body and, and, you know, and to not listen to that voice in their mind that's telling them, you know, the, the one girl that I talked with just about a month ago, she said, you know, I feel like this loser. I was always up and, and about and someone I worked in restaurants with. <laughs> and, and I said, well, look at your life, though. You're not a lazy person. You you were 33 years old. You weren't a lazy person for 32 of those years. And now the last mm-hmm. month, you can't get out of bed. And you know why. You know that's because you're mentally ill. But now you're using that as a sword to beat yourself with. You're telling me how lazy you are and how you feel like a loser and you can't get out of bed. Well, maybe just accept that you can't get out of bed. Mm-hmm. And deal with it that way. Pretend you have the flu. You know, stop one. That that that's kind of the the big advice that I give to people is stop worrying about the why, mm-hmm. right? So if you're too sick to get out of bed, don't worry about why. Well, it could be anything. It could be mono. It could be a, a heart attack. It could be whatever, right? But just accept the fact that you're too sick to get out of bed and be kind to yourself and take the time you need to get better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we have a long way to go, that's for sure. And I hope that I hope and I know I've seen it many times that when people like you open up and share your stories, it, it seems specific and individual to you, but it affects so many people. And I think we're still going. Uh, we have a long way to go, even though we've come a long way. You've been listening to a special episode of So-Called Normal with Mark Hennick. If you like what you heard, share the episode with others. You can always follow Mark on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, and Instagram at Mark Hennick. Otherwise, you might want to check out his website, markhennick.com. 
This special series of So-Called Normal has been produced by Mark Hennick and Eye Contact Productions. I'm Dave Trafford. This episode of So-Called Normal is brought to you by an educational grant from Janssen, Inc. Mark Hennick and the producers of So-Called Normal are solely responsible for the content of the episode and the views and opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Janssen, Inc. The podcast content is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition, product, or treatment. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have read or seen in this podcast episode. <laughs>